Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? All right. It's so good to see all your beautiful faces. Truly, again, my name is Nellie, if I haven't met you. Um, whether you're here in person or you're online, hi, uh, or on the podcast listening later, uh, you really truly are welcome here, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, again, my name's Nellie. Here's two random facts about me. One, I am always drinking fizzy water. Cheers. It's probably because I'm from New York, and I just sort of grew up. That's perfect timing, actually. <laughs> I grew up just drinking seltzer water. Um, two, I have this intense love for the LA football club, LAFC, and they're playing today, right after the game at 1 o'clock, and I'd love to invite you, if you have nothing else to do, oops, to come join me at El Diablo at 1 and have tacos and soccer. Tacos and soccer experience. What else? could be better, right? So I am closing the book of First John, and I'm honored to be able to share some thoughts on that. Um, last week, Raul, if you're here, reminded us that in First John 4, which is the chapter prior to chapter 5 that I'll talk about today, um, in First John 4, it talks about how we are overcomers when we remember the simple truth of the gospel, and we don't add to it. The simple truth being that Jesus Christ died and rose again and is alive for us to know God, and that we will be tempted to believe extra stuff and add to that message. It's not so much an if, but a when. And in 1 John 5, we get sort of a rehash of chapters 1 through 4 in 1 John, but we also get some I think unique points, and, and we'll dig into that a little bit today. It's almost like there was a punctuation mark at the end of this uh, book that was meant to be unique in a particular way. So I would love to wrap up this chapter by actually going back to John the Apostle and thinking about him for a second. John the Apostle, who's also known as John the Beloved, I think is actually pretty interesting and is worth us getting to know. Um, it's fair to assume he's the one who wrote 1 John. We don't know for sure, but it's a, a fair assumption. Scholars agree it's a good assumption to make. So who is this guy, and, and why am I bringing it up? John, one of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus nicknamed him Son of Thunder, which is a very peculiar nickname. could also be translated Thunderbolt for probably good reason. He, um, he was a character. Him and his brother, James, 
at one point um, in the gospel accounts, this is from Luke 9, they were ministering with Jesus in a village in Samaria, and long story short, the village was like, thanks to no thanks, thanks but no thanks to Jesus. And John was so offended that they didn't receive the message of Jesus that he was like, hey, Jesus, can we rain down fire from heaven on this village? He's like, he's not a subtle, not subtle, fairly emotional. He also had some fairly awkward timing, which I, I can appreciate. Maybe some of you can too. So, for example, in Mark um, chapter 10, Jesus is having a fairly serious talk with them, uh, the disciples, that is. And he's explaining how he's going to suffer and die. And right in the middle of that, John is basically like, so yeah, um, Jesus, when we get to heaven, is it okay if me and my boys have like the best seat in the kingdom? Is that, is that a thing? And uh, it's just as Jesus is getting to the good part about him being horribly killed. Also, in the resurrection account, and this is one of my personal favorites, honestly. It's John chapter 20, and John was apparently um, in the midst of the resurrection scene where they're running to the tomb, trying to figure out why is Jesus not there. It's made a point not once but twice that John was a faster runner than Peter. He got there first. And I think this is an adorable addendum for not just his ego, but also John really adored Jesus. He was so proud that he got to the tomb before Peter. So this is just a couple of really small tidbits about John uh, the Beloved, and I'm going to get into more of why this matters. But to mix it up a little bit, let's take a visual, let's take a walk through history and and take a look at some art that um, follows John, shall we? We're going to go back to the Renaissance. We're going to go back to a, a painting by Caravaggio, whose paintings are mostly in chapels in Rome that you can go and visit. This piece is called The Taking of the Christ. It's from 1602. Now, why would I show you this painting? First off, we have Jesus looking somewhat Italian there. We've got a a chaotic scene. Uh, Caravaggio apparently wrote himself into the scene. He's in the top right, which is cute. And John is leaning up against Jesus on the left, as he's wont to do in pretty much all the scenes in the Gospels, and he's patently freaking out, okay? I don't know what he's like trying to stop the clouds, or he's very upset, okay? In this next one, we have a Russian Orthodox icon, which thankfully John is looking a bit more like he's from the, you know, the Middle East, He's also looking a bit older, barefoot, scribey, like he's been writing some books. Looking good in that pink tunic. And then in this third one, he, we have a painting also from the Renaissance from a Frenchman named Valentin. And I really like this painting because you've got all of the disciples sort of chatting and we've got the bread, we've got some food out on the 
in front of Jesus. But we, what we have is John really snuggled up to Jesus, almost blocking his way to the food. The thing that as an Italian I'm upset about in this is if John is like in Jesus' way from the food. Do you notice this? He's like really all up in his space there. But I mention this painting because this is a picture of John that we should remember. It's like he wanted to get as close to Jesus as he possibly could at all times. That's how he's described in the Gospels. It's how he's portrayed in paintings. He really, really loved Jesus. And in this last, this last bit, we have a mosaic. Now, what is going on here? We, I love this mosaic. We have Judas creeping under the tablecloth. I don't know what Judas is doing. We've got Jesus in a very cool golden outfit. I don't know if you can see it. All of the disciples look extremely bored. But most importantly, John kind of looks like he's swaddled up like a baby being held by Jesus in the midst of this important Last Supper. John loves Jesus. Okay. So, why would I care to spend so much time bringing this up? Because in the context of 1 John, which we can assume was written by John the Apostle, John the Apostle, the gospel accounts continually paint this picture of John as this totally awkward but very bold, extremely emotional son of thunder, a lightning bolt of saying whatever comes out of his mouth. But more than anything, even in the midst of his awkwardness, he adored Jesus. He wanted to be so close to him. And we should care about him because of this fact, honestly. And the reality of adoring Jesus and that being the main thing, even in the midst of all of our foibles, that's essentially the message of 1 John. Did you know that in John's gospel, John is actually not even referred to himself as John. He's constantly referred to as, quote, the one who Jesus loved. Now think about that for a second. The one who Jesus loved. Isn't that provocative? It's actually, I was thinking, it's like not very American. It's like not even the one who loved Jesus. It's the one who's doing the receiving. It's the one who Jesus, the one who Jesus loved. Sit with that for just one minute. Just, just sit with that. The moniker of John the Apostle, that's lasted like two millennia. It's a long time. It's a lot of years. So just for fun, in this short reflective moment, if we were to write a story about Jesus and you today that could last for two millennia, what would be the phrase said about you in relationship to Jesus? Maybe the one who is curious about Jesus. Maybe the one who's not quite sure about Jesus yet. Maybe even the one who's actually kind of mad at Jesus. Or maybe it's the one that Jesus sees. The one that Jesus is curious about. The one that Jesus really looks forward to spending time with. 
So no matter where you are in this journey, you're, so, you're, you're just absolutely welcome here. Um, I know Ed said it earlier, but I'll say it again, that at Bread, you come on your own terms, wherever you are. I think this short and honestly somewhat silly representation of John and the paintings and the mosaics, it helps set the stage for how I understand 1 John chapter 5 and really the whole message of 1 John as a book and why in it we're told that we're to think of ourselves as God's kids and his love is so outrageous for us that that is actually the point. From 1 John 3, this is, this is really the, the verse that rings out for me. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. There's an exclamation point in there for you, and that is what we are. So let's dive in a little bit to 1 John 5. Um, as a quick review... 1 John, as a, as a whole, as a book, it's just five short chapters. It's mostly written in a polemical style, in other words, um, to combat errors and wrong thinking about Jesus. But it's also clear that the writer is super concerned with people loving each other, particularly loving other Christians, loving the people of God. And that loving God and loving others is really the most important thing. It's the great commandment sort of stuff. And that life-giving relationship and joy comes out of this. That's one of the points of 1 John. So I'm going to dive into a kind of a strange part of 1 John 5 in verse 6. We're going to start here. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Okay, what is going on here? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. This sounds all very medical and gross. And the first thing that I think of is a womb when I think of water and blood. And honestly... I, I really think for the early church that had heard this message, it, would, it probably would have been more obvious to them that we're referring to what happened at the crucifixion. Because Jesus, Jesus is on the cross, they plunge a spear into his side to show that he's dead. And what flows out? Water and blood. And some of them, receiving this message from 1 John, may have been old enough to have actually been there. Or they had family members that told them about it because this was such a life-changing event for their generation and for the, rest of his, for the rest of history. But perhaps, as I mentioned, you may also think of a womb. You may actually think of Mary's womb in this passage because Jesus actually came from the womb of a woman named Mary. He was fully God and fully man. That's what this is reminding us of. And because he was fully God and fully man, we know that he suffered. And because he suffered, he's compassionate to our suffering. 
and to the, our experience of life and everything that we've walked through and we will walk through, he is compassionate to because he also walked the earth as a human. So for God, suffering is not theoretical. Your, your pain and your suffering is not theoretical to him. So I'm a PhD student at um, Fuller Seminary in Old Testament. And um, I'm really enamored by words and phrases in Hebrew. Um, and I would love to give you a, a fun word fact if you're interested as it relates to this passage. So in Hebrew, the word that uh, is translated as compassion is a word rakum. And the Bible says that God, God's character, is overflowing with compassion, overflowing with self-giving love, loyal love, that just as the song sang, that we sang, it's like it chases after us. His love is so incredible and otherworldly. And that word in Hebrew, rakum, is strangely close to the word for womb in Hebrew. The word for womb in Hebrew is rakem. Now, I know in English and even hearing it in Hebrew, it doesn't sound as life-altering, rakum and rakem, but I promise you, if you look at the Hebrew, it looks like it's the same word. I actually had to get reading glasses once I started having to pay close attention to Hebrew vowels, and I realized I can't see them. They're so small. Rakum and rakem. I think this is actually pretty brilliant on the part of uh, the writers of Scripture to describe God in a way that could kind of go back and forth between thinking of his compassion and thinking of a womb. Because who better can embody the fullness of compassion than a mother who's actually holding her child inside her body, in her womb? This is the way that God holds us. And if you remember from the pictures of John, it seems like he understood that, even in his own posture and how close he wanted to be to Jesus. It seems like he understood the way God's love holds us. We can trust him, guys, because his compassion never fails. It's new every morning. And it's as intense for us as a mother who holds a child in their womb. So this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. I also want to mention, it's clear that the water in this section is referring to the power of Jesus and his baptism, which you might remember in the gospel accounts, how Jesus humbles himself, goes to another John, there's so many Johns, John the Baptist, and he says, I have to be baptized, you have to baptize me, please baptize me. And he goes into the water, he's immersed, he comes out of the water, there's a voice from heaven, from God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Then we've got the Holy Spirit as a dove symbolically falling on him, and boom, Jesus' ministry begins. He's commissioned in that moment. It's also likely that the water is referring to another particular, ta uh, another particular moment in the Gospels where Jesus grabs a, a water bucket and he, he says to his disciples, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. 
And he says, take off your sandals. I have to wash your feet now. And one by one, he washes each one of their feet, their nasty feet. And as he's washing their feet, he's explaining that this is what must be done, that we must continue to serve others, even in a way that feels absolutely kind of gross, where we get down in the dirt with one another. And in that moment, Jesus also predicts his betrayal, and John is leaning against Jesus again when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he says this, by this, everyone will know that you are mine if you love one another. It's a spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So not only that, not only has the water and the blood happened, but the spirit is there going, "Mm mm-hmm, that happened. Looking at the historical reality of what Jesus accomplished and saying, yes, that happened. I was there. I agree. See, this is the Spirit's main gig. The Holy Spirit's gig is to point to Jesus at all times, to remind us of what he's done, to remind us of what he's doing, to show us what is God doing in this moment. It's why here at Bread we so often just pray the simple prayer, which I'll pray right now. Holy Spirit, come. Everything in 1 John, everything, along with John's gospel itself, is about this thing that actually happened. 1 John begins, you you might remember from Hannah's talk a few weeks ago, "That that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, notice all the senses, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and we proclaim it to you. So much of the book of 1 John, and even the final chapter, is meant to remind us, these people actually saw what Jesus did on the earth. They were there. They touched him. They saw him with their eyes. They heard him. They testified to it. And so the book is essentially a testimony to what they saw. It's plain and simple. The Old Testament word for testimony is really juicy. It's, um, it's a word we could probably do a whole series on. The Hebrew root of that word means repeat or do it again or return to that. And it's also related to the word that means witness. Isn't there something about a testimony? There's something about it. It's something that we should do more often, is share the, the stories of what we've seen God do. So I'm going to take a second and just share one quick story of my own. I haven't shared this in a while. Um, I, throughout my life, starting in 
university and going up until even just, honestly, a couple months ago, I've had three or four instances where I've had a debt that's been canceled or taken care of in a really outrageous way, in what I would say a miraculous way, completely unexpected, sometimes involving strangers. And it's had a profound impact on my life. It's had a profound impact on me being able to even like pursue a doctoral degree coming from a blue-collar family. And I was in, uh, I was actually in Europe on a train on my way to Prague to visit a friend. And I was with another dear friend. And I was sharing with her this story. I was, at that point, there was two or three examples, not four or five as there is now. But I had just been telling her, this is what God did. Because she was facing a pretty significant educational loan. And she goes, yeah, Nellie, yeah. I, but I just can't count on that. I can't count on that. You're, you're lucky. You're blessed. And I just remember smiling and, and looking at her straight in the eyes and saying, but we're in the same family. We have the same good father. And that very night, I kid you not, this is, it's almost ridiculous, this story. We get to Prague. It's snowing. It's snowing actually so hard that there's snow falling off the roofs from, uh, if you've ever been to Prague, but they have these really tall buildings. And there was snow coming off the roof and falling on these little Fiat cars and denting the, the hoods of the cars. It was so intense. And we're walking to dinner. And you should know, we arrived in Prague. We thought we had a free place to stay. And then we realized, oh, no, that actually fell through. We had to spend money we didn't really have to go to an Air, Airbnb. We're walking to the, uh, the restaurant, and I look down, and what's stuck in the cobblestone but uh, a note, a cash note. And I, I pick it up, and I just start laughing. It's a 5,000-crown note, which I don't even know how much that's worth, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is a lot of money. And I showed it to my friend, and she's like, no, how does this happen to you? And I'm like, this is for you. This is, this is God showing you. He's going to provide for you. Later found out that that's worth like 225 US dollars. It covered the cost of our hotel, even let us have a nice dinner. Well, a couple years later, that same friend had a debt that was canceled out of left field, out of nowhere. And I just have to say, oh, God, you're so kind. You're so kind that I get to be a part of that. And who knows? Who knows what other stories that we have where God has done something magnificent that we just need to share it with somebody as a testimony to say, God, do this again. Do this for them. You're so kind. Why wouldn't you? I don't think I have to say it twice in a place like this in Hollywood that stories and storytelling, honestly, may be one of the most powerful things in the cosmos, right? Even the smallest testimony of us telling our own God story, even the smallest story, to remember it and hold it out for others is incredibly powerful. It helps grow people's faith. It's kind of like cooking an incredibly delicious feast and letting the smell of it waft out the doors of your house so your neighbors can smell it. It generates hunger for God to hear people's stories of what actually happened. 
That's why we need each other. It's a way of saying, please, God, repeat this. Do it again. So back to 1 John 5. Like the water, the blood, and the spirit, the testimony of our own lives points others to Jesus. It gives us hope in a world of despair. It hints even at God's massive love, his giant compassion that's like a womb for us. So what, this is just a challenge to you. What, what God story, big or small, what, what is it that you need to share with somebody this week, honestly? We're so terminably bored. We're so bored. Because we haven't had our hearts excited by faith. We haven't had our hearts excited by what God can do. And we've settled for being bored, to be honest. Speaking to myself right now. We need each other. We really do. We need each other to tell the truth of what God's done in our lives. So, here's where I'm going. At the very end of 1 John, there's almost like a finale. And there's, it's kind of like a PS, like a postscript. Have you guys ever written a letter or maybe an email? Gosh, I hate emails. Have you ever written a letter and then you really think through the postscript because you know it's going to be sort of like a non sequitur, it's not really related to the rest of the thing you wrote, but it's the thing you want them to remember? I honestly feel like that's what's happening here in 1 John. Now, 1 John is not really a letter from what we can gather. It seems more like a sermon, a poetic sermon. But there's something that's said at the very end of the book that I want to highlight. At the end of the book, we have this, these two verses. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Okay? Then there's this pause. There's a line. And at the very end, there's this P.S., says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And then the book ends. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now you may say to me, Nellie, I'm good. I haven't made any little golden calf statues lately. I don't have them sitting in my house. I don't actually have idols. This doesn't, this doesn't pertain to me. And before I land the plane, land, land the plane of this talk, I, and I promise I will, let's just talk for a moment about idolatry. Um, because this is a word that we don't use that much these days. It's kind of a strange one for us to even, like, conceptualize. Think about this phrase, which you also may have heard. Jesus Christ is Lord. For the early Christians... Saying Jesus Christ is Lord, it wasn't just this cute thing to say in a Sunday gathering. It wasn't just this confessional statement. It wasn't something that they just sang in a worship song over and over. It was actually a uh, life-changing statement that meant they could be killed before the emperor. Because in saying Jesus Christ is Lord, what they were saying is, and the emperor is not. 
and I don't give 100% allegiance to the emperor. And so that statement alone was enough to have a, a pretty good portion of the early church martyred. And there's places in the world today where this still happens. This week, hold that on a, on a ledge for a moment. I want to tell you a quick story. This week I was making some lunch for myself in my house. And I turned around on the corner and saw some flies circling around uh, an area on the counter where there was like some salt and pepper chips, some Nutella, all the good stuff, right? And I'm like, what is that? And I peek into the area and find this little acorn squash, this poor, sad, long-forgotten acorn squash. I'm sorry, Alicia, Alicia's one of my housemates, so she has to put up with this sort of stuff. It's an acorn squash that I had left and forgotten, and it was now actually melting into the counter. It was so old. And there was this black stuff that was sort of emitting out of it, and there was flies. It was gross. It was just disgusting. I immediately threw it out. And I felt a bit sad that I had forgotten about my vegetables. And I mention that because when I think about idolatry, and I ask the Holy Spirit, what is this word all about? What does it mean? What does it mean in, in my life? Just like the flies that were circling around the rotting squash, idolatry in our lives will attract all kinds of rotten stuff, guys. Confusion. It will attract all kinds of junk into our lives. And we have to get rid of it. But here's the thing. It's actually somewhat tricky to figure out where we have idols in our own life. Because this is not a question that we often ask ourselves. An idol is anything that we have put in the place of where only God belongs. An idol is sitting in the space of our trust or our habits or maybe even our main affections where only God can satisfy us. And honestly, we need the Lord to show us what those things are. We need them. So I've been asking God, this is a little vulnerable, but I've been asking the Lord this somewhat dangerous question, where are the idols in my life? <laughs> and without sharing all of them, one of the words that keeps coming up when I ask God this question is this word convenience. I hear the Lord saying, Nellie, convenience is an idol in your life. And honestly, I don't think I fully understand what that means, so I'm very slowly unwrapping it. But I'm starting with uh, just fasting from some of the typical convenience apps, you know, like the DoorDashes and the Postmates. Who knows, maybe I'll even do some fasting from Amazon Prime, which would be a big deal. And I'm going slow and intentionally because I really do want to know. I really want the Lord to show me, like, what has been replacing you in really small ways where there's now some rotting in my, in my life, 
what's rotting that I may not even notice? And so I really trust God to continue to show me what that is. And I'm going to do my best to respond to him and say, I trust you, you first. I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to make some changes. And so I mention that because in this postscript, at the end of the book, it does seem that John, the one who is loved by God, John, the one who knows so deeply God's love, wants us to realize how idols will distract us from being able to receive God's love. And sometimes repentance comes in really slow waves. Like it doesn't have to be this dramatic, it can be. It doesn't have to be a dramatic all at once, you cut out everything from your life. It can go slowly. Because the reality is, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Amen? It's God's kindness. His compassion is so full for us, guys. So like John, we really can risk it all to be close to Jesus. We can. We can invite him to tell us the hard things. To see ourselves as the ones most loved by God. And to let our own personal stories ring out. Even the smallest ones. Even the smallest testimonies. We can allow those to go out to tell someone else what God's done for you. We have no idea the impact on someone else's life and all of eternity that may have. So I would love right now to invite the the band back up. I'm going to do one more song together and worship the Lord sort of in a contemplative way.